take some kiddos out of here. And so uh, if you've got kids who are third grade and under, they can, you can follow them down the hall to their classroom um, as we open the scriptures here momentarily for our sermon. Uh, but we'll be in Genesis chapter 2 if you want to turn there. Uh, as you do, I just want to say a, a special word of appreciation to a, a handful of volunteers who uh, got up early yesterday, uh, came out, buttered a lot of bread, um, and stacked ham and cheese and packaged chips and cookies, uh, all to feed about 240 Rockwall band people um, over at Rockwall High School. And so to feed all the band members, the color guard, the chaperones, the bus drivers, um, all of the people who make that operation possible. Um, and so uh, if you served yesterday, once you stand up, um, I know since I got recognized this morning, I want to recognize you as well. Um, but go ahead and stand up if you were there yesterday to help with that. Uh, yeah, so why don't you guys thank them for their faithfulness. Um, you guys can have a seat. I, I saw when I got there, uh, our staff and elders were on a staff and elders retreat on Thursday night, Friday night. And I got home Saturday morning and I drove straight to Rockwall High School. And I got there, Sam Allen had on this big apron with a big spatula flipping grilled cheese sandwiches out there, cooking them up. Uh, the Harveys were all gloved up, boxing stuff. And uh, Sarah, my daughter, was there in the assembly line and my wife and uh, the Macy's were there helping out. Um, and so I, the, the, the Rockwall Booster Club, uh, Band Booster Club, was incredibly grateful for our investment there, not only financially, but also the man hours and the volunteers to help make that possible to feed those kids before they left for a day of competition. So uh, as we have opportunities to bless our community like that, um, we want to take advantage of those. Um, and if you able, weren't able to be there yesterday, the next opportunity that arises, I would encourage you, be a part of that, because uh, it is an incredible opportunity to connect and meet people uh, who may be far from God and be able to minister to them in the name of Christ, even providing just a real simple, tangible need that they have, a grilled cheese sandwich, right? Um, so uh, thank you guys for serving. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series looking at foundations. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 is where we'll read together. If you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there as we read together. But beginning in verse 18 through verse 25, Moses writes these words in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. 
You know, over the course of the years of ministry, of the last 25 years of ministry, I've done more weddings than I can remember. Um, and as a part of every single one of those weddings that I do, um, couples exchange vows with one another. But before I lead them to exchange vows with one another, I lead them to declare their intent before God to fulfill their vow to Him as a husband or as a wife. And as a part of setting up that declaration of intent, I read this statement. I say, marriage is an honorable estate instituted by God at the time of creation for the well-being of humankind. So marriage is God's idea. It's something that he conceived of in his own mind. It's not our idea. And from the very beginning, God establishes marriage as the normative pattern for humankind, for humanity. Now, there are exceptions. Jesus is going to speak of those in the Gospels who are eunuchs from birth and then eunuchs on account of war because they were taken captives as slaves. And then he's going to speak of those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Right? So there's a singleness for the sake of the apostle. Paul typifies in his own ministry when he says, I wish you could all be like as I was, right? wholeheartedly pursuing the Lord, seeking him, serving him, not having anything that would prohibit me from doing that. But he says, not all of you can be like me. Right? Because the normative pattern that God establishes at the very foundations of creation is marriage. Unfortunately, in the culture in which we live, marriage has the view of marriage in our culture has decreased significantly over the course of the last century. Because what one generation does in moderation, the next generation often does in excess. And so it just continues to spiral. Previous generations saw the cultural view of marriage slide lower and lower. And if you look at divorce rates from the late 1800s, and you compare those to the divorce rates in the late 1900s, what you'll see is that those rates rose from 4% in the late 1800s to 54% in the late 1900s. So a little over half of individuals who were entering into marriage ended in divorce. And then add to that, in the 1960s, or part of that trend was the introduction of no-fault divorce law. So you no longer had to prove adultery or abuse or abandonment. Now you could just divorce over irreconcilable differences because our lives are heading in a different direction. And as a result, in the wake of that, many emerging adults who saw their parents treat marriage as a contractual consumer relationship had it shaped the way that they viewed marriage. So the next generation and the generation after that are products many times of homes that are torn apart by divorce and their views of marriage become lower and lower and many feel like, why even bother? Why even bother with something that caused so much pain and so much heartache in my own home? And if I do get married one day, it's going to be after an extended test drive, right? A trial period of living together. In fact, many young adults feel like the legal aspect of the relationship stifles the romantic aspect of the relationship. So if the ceremony and the paper stifles the passion and the excitement and the freedom, then why bother with the legal aspects? Let's just live together long enough to figure out if this is what we really want. That's the typical view of marriage within our culture. And yet the Bible has a very high view of marriage. Very high view. And what has been the source of so much heartache in our culture, the Bible offers a view of marriage that can help bring healing to that. 
what has been the source of so much confusion in our culture, the Bible is able to give like 8K ultra high definition clarity to what marriage is, the nature of marriage. And in this particular text this morning, in the latter part of Genesis chapter 2, I believe uh, we see God give us an idea of what the essence or the nature of marriage is to be about between a man and a woman. And the first thing I want us to see in this passage this morning with regards to marriage is this, that marriage is a sacred covenant, not a social contract. And there's a big Big difference between those two things. Listen, in Genesis 2.24, we read these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, the therefore in verse 24 points us back to verses 18 to 23. And then it draws a conclusion on the basis of what we read in those verses. In verses, listen, in verses 18 to 20, we're told that the first thing to be declared not good in the world was man being alone. Right? Up to this point, in all of God's work of creation, he saw everything was good. Everything was good. Behold, everything was very good. And now in Genesis 2, 18, we're told the first thing not be, to be good was man being alone. So God, who had made all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air, he says, I'm going to find a suitable or a fit helper for the man. And so what does he do? He takes all the animals and he brings them before the man and asks the man to name them. Now, God was fully capable of naming all of the lions and the tigers and the bears, okay? And all the pelicans and all the crows and all the cardinals. However... This act of naming was a part of him dispensing dominion to the man as he exercised rule over the created order that God had made. So God gives man the delegated responsibility of naming all of these creatures. And yet, even as he brought every single one of them in front of the man, there was no other like the man. There was no other of his kind. There was not a fit or suitable helper that was found for him. So God, it's not like God says, I'm going to make a helper for him, but I'm going to set it up to so where he feels, like, feels the need that he needs a helper because there's no one else like him. So in verses 21 to 23, God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep, and then he removes a rib from the man, takes it out of his side, closes that place up with flesh, and he forms the woman. Another according to his kind. And when he awakes for the first time, there was another like him, but different from him. While he would continue to be man, she would be woman. And the man says, when he awakes, at last, another like me. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Another like me. See, what God had done in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, is, is in, in that particular section, Moses narrates what he had alluded to in the poetry in Genesis 1.27, when God created male and female according to his image. Here we see how he does that. God created male and female in his image. Then we, then we read those words, therefore... Right? On the basis of what God had done to bring this fit, suitable helper to the man, we read, therefore. And the conclusion that we read in verses 24 and 25 is this, is that, the, that they should leave, cleave, and become one. Leave, cleave, and become one. Now, the language of holding fast in the Bible is covenant language. It's covenant language. 
And the nature of a covenant in the Bible is twofold. It has a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Okay? So this vertical dimension, God makes promises and pledges to his people which bind him to them. Okay? And in return, God asks his people that he has bound himself to to make promises, pledges, and commitments to him which binds them to him. So God is making a covenant to bind himself to his people, and his people are making a covenant to bind themselves to their God. Right? God would demonstrate his faithfulness to his people to act on their behalf, and his people would demonstrate their faithfulness to their God by walking in obedience to his commands. But in the horizontal dimension, the people of God also make promises and pledges to others on the basis of the covenant that they have with God. So if you read elsewhere in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, and you see that word hold fast, or in the older English translations, to cleave, right? What you're going to see is that it shows up when people are making commitments and taking oaths. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, Moses says to Israel, as they've come out of the land of Egypt, moving toward the land of promise, he says this, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear shall take oaths or vows. So Moses is calling on the people to be faithful to the covenant Lord that, that, that had rescued them from the hand of Egypt and brought them through at Sinai. So as God has promised himself to them, they are to hold fast in obedience to him and make promises to others and swear by the name or authority of God himself. So to hold fast to or to cleave means to be faithful to your covenant promises and faithful to your covenant pledges. And when this holding fast to promises and pledges with covenant partners takes place horizontally between a man and a woman, the Bible says the two become one flesh. One flesh. You might literally say they are stuck together. Right? Because that word hold fast, if you look at it in the Hebrew, it literally means to join together or to glue together. Right? So, uh, listen, I'm not a master craftsman by any stretch of the imagination, but I have built some furniture over the years, some tables and some swings and some consoles and different things. And anytime I'm trying to join two pieces of wood together, I will use wood glue and screws in order to make that joint a, a permanent bond. And the reason I use glue with that, and most any craftsman who's worth their weight is going to use wood glue, um, but the reason you use glue is because the glue is formulated in such a way that it creates, when it cures, it creates such a strong bond between those two pieces of wood that whenever you try to take them apart again, oftentimes you end up ripping out portions of the wood that come along with the glue because it is seeped into the fibers of the wood in such a way that it binds them together. That's the kind of one flesh union that is intended to take place in marriage. This is how the Bible speaks of that kind of covenant love, this strong and stable bond between two souls. It's this unconditional and sacrificial commitment to the other individual, a promise and pledge to a covenant partner. And this kind of spiritual covenant the Bible speaks of is vastly different from a social contract. 
See, this is the way a contract works. If you've ever signed a contract, perhaps you know how this works. Despite, no, no, regardless of how many pages of fine print there are, at the end of that contract, essentially what you're saying is this. If you do these things for me, then I will do these things for you. If you fail to do these things for me, then I'm no longer obligated to do these things for you. That's what a contract is. But a covenant is different from a contract because in a covenant you say, whether you do these things for me, I'm promising and pledging to do these things for you. And even if you fail to uphold your end, I still am going to be faithful to uphold mine. That's what a covenant relationship looks like. I will uphold mine. Now, a contractual relationship, listen, church, it's acceptable when it comes to pest control services, when it comes to internet service providers, when it comes to electric companies, right? All those types of vendors and services. But the problem is that the closer and the more intimate the relationship, the more damaging it becomes to operate contractually. It becomes disastrous. So the way you operate in a service contract with a home security company or you operate with a general contractor who's building your home is not the way that you operate as a member of a church, right? You don't say, right, if you can provide me all the bells and whistles I want, then I'll get involved, then I'll start serving, then I'll participate, then I'll begin to give, right? It's not the way that you operate as a true friend. Because if you're a true friend, you don't say, if you were not able to be there for me when I needed you, then I won't be there for you whenever you need me. That's not true friendship. It's not the way that you even operate as a loving parent. Because you don't say to your three-year-old, if you will stop pooping in your pants, right, then I will feed you more, (laughs) right? That's contractual, And probably illegal under like child neglect laws somewhere, okay? That's a contractual understanding. But you provide for, you nourish and care for your child even when it's super messy and not very rewarding, okay? But listen, there is no more intimate relationship than that of a husband and wife. And when you try to substitute contractual love, For covenant love. It's disastrous. Because there are two totally different ways of relating to each other. And it's a clear and present danger. Right? So, why is then contractual love so disastrous in marriage? Let me give you four reasons real quick. First of all, contractual love always celebrates feelings of current love. While covenantal love promises the promise of future love, celebrates the promise of future love. Listen, like I said, I've lost count of the number of weddings I've done over the years. But in some of those weddings, many of those weddings, in fact, right, there's a trend of, of, of couples wanting to write their own vows. And whenever they, I, I give them the freedom to do that, flexibility to do that. But what I've noticed about the vows that they write, that most couples write for themselves, is that what they are is a celebration of their current feelings of love for the other person, for their fiancé or their soon-to-be spouse. And when they write them, everything is in the past tense or in the present tense. And while they may be very moving and inspirational to listen to about their journey and how they got to be together and how they feel about each other at that moment, 
moment, at the pinnacle of all of their emotions and hormones raging and running, right? All they are is a mere regurgitation of present emotion. But the traditional marriage vows that have been used by pastors in ceremonies, regardless of denominations, for centuries say nothing of the couple's current feelings of love for each other, but promise future love to each other, for better or worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, regardless of how high or how low their feelings may be at a certain given point in the future. And when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive from that person, right, in a contract, where if you do for me, I'll do for you, right? But how much you're willing to lose for the sake of that person. How much you're willing to give up for the sake of that person. How much of your freedom you're willing to forsake. How much of your time and emotion and resources you're willing to invest in that individual and in that relationship. What are you willing to promise and pledge for the future, not how you feel in the present, but contractual love as a result because it only promises how it feels in the present. It has no seeing and staying power. Right? Because when it begins to see things that it doesn't like any longer, right, then it has no staying power in the midst of that because it's made no promise of future love. Because I don't know about you, right, but feelings can change from year to year. They can change from month to month, from week to week, from day to day, from hour to hour, from moment to moment at times, right? I can do something to make my wife melt in the morning and explode in the evening, right? And those of you who have been married any amount of time know that's, that's a reality, okay, Right? Feelings can change, but what, the, the, what stays baseline is the promise of future love, not feelings. Right? Because whenever you begin to see, and at some point you will, see blemishes on their body or see stains on their soul, will you see and stay? Only covenant love allows you to do that. Second of all, contractual love leads to bondage, but covenant love, church, it leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. And so many in our culture have this backwards. Because we, what we, th- we think that the celebration of current love leads to freedom because we get to move from relationship to relationship to relationship and whenever that one ceases to be, be, be fulfilling for us any longer, then we feel like we're in bondage to that individual if we can't break free and move to the next relationship. And while covenant love does does limit our options, right? Contractual love, it, it, it enslaves us to our wishes, to our whims, to our desires, to our feelings in the moment. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, people get from books, and I might add in our day, movies and television shows, that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result... When they find they are not, quote unquote, in love, they think this person that they have, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. On the other hand, 
we think that the promise of future love will limit our freedom. And it does in the short term, but listen, in the long term, it, it, there's a freedom that you cannot find any other way or any other place. Because we end up with a kind of freedom and fullness because the promise of future love and exclusive commitment, listen, it is narrow going in. But it opens up into this vast expanse of trust. And listen, there is nothing more freeing in the context of human relationships than trust. Of knowing, of knowing that regardless of how someone feels in that moment, that they're going to see and they're going to stay. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, in promising, you limit your options now in order to have a wonderful, fuller options later. You curb your freedom now so you can be free to be there in the future for people who trust you. When you make a promise to someone, both of you know that you're going to be there with and for them. You'll be there with and for them regardless of how much they change, and they'll be with with you and for you regardless of how much you change because you're both going to change. You don't stay static, right? I was married 21 years ago, and I'm not the same person today that I was at 23, okay? And neither is my wife. In fact, Lewis Smead's counselor said, he said, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could... How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. (laughs) But where there is covenant love, there is a freedom, because in the midst of all this unpredictability and uncertainty, you're creating the stability of trust, rather than living in a jungle of savagery as you move from relationship to relationship to relationship. You get used up, spit out. Third, contractual love, it rises and falls on the idea of another person while covenantal love remains even as reality replaces fantasy. See, in our Western American mindset, we commit to people on the basis oftentimes of romantic attraction. That tends to be the first thing. And so we end up falling for people before we even know them at times. And listen, some of you students are like, this is like, years down the road for me, I'm telling you, this will save you so much heartache if you will embrace this truth now at 7th grade, 8th grade, 9th grade, 10th grade, and not wait until you're 28, 29, 43. Okay? We end up falling for people on the basis of romantic attraction. We give our heart away faster than our head can gain knowledge about the character of that individual. We begin to feel more for a person than we know about them. And as a result, what happens psychologically, our minds begin to fill in the gaps. And because we're so inundated with all of these emotions, all the things that we're filling in are positive about the other individual. Case in point, right? The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Romantic comedies, okay? Before they ever know anything about the other person's families, or about their future hopes and dreams and desires, right? There is this instant chemistry and a, this sometimes fatal attraction that takes place. I thought there's a beautiful illustration of this in the Lord of the Rings. You're like, Lord of the Rings? What? 
there is a beautiful elven princess named Eowyn, and she falls in love with a human ranger named Aragorn, who was heir to the throne of Gondor. But he cannot return her love. And at one point, he says to her brother, Eomer, he says, she loves you more truly than me. For you she loves and knows, but in me she loves only a shadow and a thought and a hope of glory and great deeds and lands far away. You see, what Aragorn understood is that contractual love, romantic attraction that does something for me. It's a love substitute that celebrates current feelings with no future promises is incredibly intoxicating. And the reason it's so intoxicating is because you're actually in love with the idea of another person, not another real human being with fantasy rather than reality. And whenever fantasy is replaced with reality, because guess what? That bachelor or that bachelorette probably snores, okay? All right, they're going to pass gas in the most inopportune times. All right, there's going to be a reality that hits. And when it does, and they're no longer living in that fantasy world, and they're no longer willing to give themselves away what they perceive to be an acceptable cost, it often ends in heartache. But covenantal love promises future love, future love. And then fourth, contractual love is functional while covenantal love, church, it is beautiful. See, while contractual love is built on the usefulness of another person in our lives, and it becomes less and less useful over time because when the other person is no longer useful or able to serve some function for us, that person no longer does it for us, then we're done with them. But on the other hand, covenantal love grows in beauty over time as it endures and perseveres. Listen, what I would call all the upside-down exchange rates in marriage. Because listen, after 21 years of marriage, I can say with full confidence, right, there have been seasons in which the exchange rate between what I'm giving and receiving is upside-down. And the exchange rate for my wife between what she is giving and what she is receiving is upside down. Sometimes you're giving much more than you're receiving in the relationship. Other times you're receiving much more than you're giving. Right? There's, a, there's so often this upside down exchange rate. And through all the challenges and changes of life. And yet covenant love says I will endure that upside down exchange rate seasonally. And continue to, to give even when I'm not receiving. Right? It's a beautiful thing. And we are captivated by displays of this kind of covenant love, both in song and on the screen. So back in 2013, American singer and songwriter John Legend released his fourth studio album called, ironically enough, Love in the Future. And one of the songs on that album was entitled All of Me, and it was dedicated to his wife. And it, was, it released as the album's third single on August 12th, 2013. Nine months later, May 16th, 2014, it peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming his first number one single in the U.S. Listen to the lyrics of that song. What would I do without your smart mouth? It's a great way to start, right? Drawing me in and kicking me out. Got my head spinning. No kidding. I can't pin you down. What's going on in that beautiful mind? 
I'm on your magical mystery ride. I'm so dizzy, don't even know what hit me, but I'll be all right. My head's underwater, but I'm breathing fine. You're crazy, and I'm out of my mind. Cards on the table, we're both showing hearts, risking it all, though it's hard. How many times do I have to tell you, even when you're crying, you're beautiful too. The world is beating you down. I'm around through every mood. You're my downfall. You're my muse, my worst distraction, my rhythm and blues. I can't stop singing. It's ringing in my head for you. And then the chorus says, because all of me loves all of you, loves your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. Give your all to me. I'll give my all to you. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning because I give you all, all of me, and you give me all, all of you. And the reason a song like this resonates so deeply that it rises up the charts so rapidly is because church We know somewhere deep inside as human beings that we were created to love and be loved like that. All of me entrusted to all of you. All of you entrusted to all of me. Deep inside, we know we were built for a love in which we could be naked and not ashamed. Completely vulnerable. All, as he says, all our cards on the table, both showing hearts. Right? No spades, no trump cards. We're just showing hearts. Everything open, transparent, vulnerable. It's a beautiful thing. But it brings us to the crux of our dilemma. See, our dilemma is this. To be fully loved, but not fully known, may be on one hand comforting but it's superficial and hollow. But to be fully known and not fully loved is our greatest fear. That someone would know all of us and reject us. But to be fully known and fully loved is our deepest desire. And the only relationship in which you can be fully known and fully loved is a covenant relationship that promises future love and celebrates that promise, not celebrates the promise of current emotions. That's why covenant love is far superior to contractual love. It is beautiful. It is lasting and enduring. Now, you may be asking the question, what do we do with all of this? Let me give you a few things first. First, and this, listen, this applies to you whether you are single, whether you're a student, okay, whether you are married, whether you are divorced, whether you are widowed. Did I leave anyone out? Okay, it applies to every single one of us in this room. On the basis of what we learn about the nature and essence of marriage, it is a spiritual, a sacred covenant, not a social contract. Holding fast, cleaving, becoming one flesh, knowing and being known and loved. What do you do with all this? First of all, you have to learn to think covenant. To think covenant. And the question attached to this is which is more attractive to you? A good time or a good legacy? In a 2010 New York Times article, a lady by the name of Wendy Plump, she chronicles how her marriage dissolved after she had an affair. After the affair came to light, her husband had an affair as well, and the marriage just 
crumpled under the weight of that infidelity. And she tells the story she reflects on her parents. And this is what she says. They have this marriage of 50 years behind them. And it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. Then she asks, if you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained, devotion. Or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah. Crated with spent artillery shells. See, when you look back in the landscape of your life, which would you rather see? If you want to see years of steady and some, yet sometimes strained devotion, you need to think covenant, not contract. Have your mind renewed by the language of Scripture because our minds have been so inundated with the language of our culture to think contract, 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 contract. You do this for me, I do this for you. I'm celebrating how I feel right now, making no promise about where I'll be in the future. You need to learn to think covenant as you move toward marriage, as you endure in marriage. Now listen, I want to say just a brief caveat. I know there are some of you in this room whose marriage has come to an end through no choice of your own. You thought covenant all the way, but your spouse did not. And I want you to know that God has seen your faithfulness. He has seen your steadiness. He has seen your willingness to endure. He has seen you fulfill your promises. And He is pleased. So do not walk away today beating yourself up because something dissolved that you wanted to see last. You with me? Second thing, and this one's not on the slides. Sorry. Spend the currency of covenant. It's a currency of covenant. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, when the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage and husbands and wives, he gets to the end of that discussion and he says, Husbands ought to love their wives and wives ought to respect their husbands. See, the currency of covenant is love and respect. And listen, that exchange rate is not always going to be one for one. Okay? What that means is this, that men, okay, when Paul calls men to love their wives as Christ loved the church and lay their lives down for her, sacrifice for her, give themselves away. Listen, that's what it means to be the head. Okay? That you pattern yourself after Jesus. Okay? And Jesus didn't sit in a lazy boy with a remote and say, bring me my dinner. All right? What it means to be the head means that you give yourself away, that you sacrifice for the sake of those under your headship. That's what it means. 
And listen, there are going to be times in which your wife, her actions, are, you're not always going to feel like she's deserving of your sacrifice. She's deserving of you giving yourself away. But what it means when you spend the currency of covenant is that whether or not you feel like she's deserving of that, you still spend the currency and you still love her by laying your life down for her. On the flip side, ladies, you're, you, you will not always feel like your husband is deserving of your respect because he's going to do some boneheaded things at times. Right? He's going to do some knuckleheaded stuff. But that means that you don't blow him up. Okay? Husbands, you don't blow your wife off when you feel like she is not deserving, right, of your sacrifice. But ladies, you don't blow him up by coming in with guns blazing and cannons loaded, right, or taking to social media or sitting with other ladies and, for lack of a better term, right, gossiping about your husband, Right? You don't blow him up. You spend the, covenant, the currency of covenant. Whether you feel like the other person is worth that expenditure or not in the context of the relationship. So that men, you're loving and sacrificing and serving. And ladies, you're respecting and affirming what you can affirm. Okay, So you think covenant. You spend the currency of covenant. And then third, you train for covenant. You train for it because it does not come naturally to you. Listen, and this is particularly relevant to those of you who are in middle school, those of you who are in high school, those of you who are single adults, those of you who are widowed or perhaps divorced, that you train for it. And there are several ways you train for it. One, you reject the prevailing hookup culture and refuse to entrust your body to someone that you would not entrust your whole life to. That's what sex is. It's a whole life entrustment to another person. And so there is, it makes absolutely no sense to entrust your body to someone that you would not entrust your money to, that you would not entrust your time to, that you would not entrust your heart to. That you do not give away without giving away your whole life in the covenant of marriage. Second, with regards to training for covenant, listen, we're all afraid of being canceled in this culture, but you've got to cancel the test drive of living together. Listen, studies have shown that living together prior to marriage actually creates the opposite effect of what you intend. And here's the reason I believe that to be the case, is because when you're living together prior to the step of covenant union, that is like a full-on 24-7 audition to be a spouse without any certainty that it's actually going to end at the altar. You're constantly auditioning to be the to, to that other person who can quickly and easily cut ties and walk away. All right? I was visiting with a young lady in our community uh, a number of years ago. And she was talking about how she had moved in with someone, begun to live with that individual. 
And it was like a night and day difference, right? She felt like she was waiting for the ring and waiting for the ring and waiting for the ring and waiting for the ring, which, by the way, the ring doesn't give you right to move in either. Say that too. But waiting for the ring, waiting for the commitment, and the commitment never came. In fact, quite the opposite happened. One day, he just got, you got to move all your stuff out and be gone by the time I get home. And what happens in that instance is devastation. Because you were constantly auditioning to become the wife or become the husband without any certainty there was a path forward towards that. And then third thing I say about training for covenant is commit to a people before you commit to a person. Here's what I mean by that. Listen, I believe it's a healthy thing to walk in covenant community and allow that community to speak into the context of relationships as they're forming before you commit to a person without any advice, wisdom, feedback from others, counsel from others. Right? And so you train yourself for covenant by saying, I'm going to pledge myself to this people, to this local church, to this body. And then as God brings someone along, then they get to walk in that journey with me. They get to speak into that alongside of me. And they get to celebrate with me whenever the Lord blesses me with a husband or with a wife. But commit to a per- people before you commit to a person. That's how you train yourself for covenant. You've got to think that way. You've got to spend that currency. And you've got to do things to train yourself to move in that direction. Because it, your natural inclination is going to be to move toward contract every single time. Now, I want to close with this. Why is all this so important? Now, I say it this way. It's because marriage is a mirror. See, God embeds marriage at the very foundation of creation, the very outset of the world, to be a reflection of the relationship that his son would have with his people. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. In verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In verse 31 of Ephesians 5, then verse 32, he says this. This mystery, what mystery? The mystery of the husband leaving the father and mother, holding fast to the wife, the two becoming one flesh. That mystery of that one flesh union is profound right it's mind-blowing and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church he says the mystery of marriage is a mirror that points us to the relationship between Christ and his church See, the pinnacle of God's love for us is seen in Jesus Christ and the covenant he established with us, with us where he sees all the blemishes. He sees all the stains and he stays. Because he's made a promise to us. At great cost to himself, he lays his life down. Because we don't see and stay ourselves. He saw and stayed all the way to the cross. In spite of everything that he knew, he was not living in fantasy. He had full-scale reality in his view the entire time. Even though he knew we would be littered with selfishness and greed and consumerism and perversion. That we wouldn't extend forgiveness. That we would harbor bitterness. That we'd commit spiritual adultery. He knew we would be foolish and hypocritical. Yet he stayed for us.
and from the very big mirror to reflect that truth into the world. And so listen, the degree to which if you're single, you pursue marriage as a covenant. If you're married, that you stay married in the context of a covenant. The degree to which that covenantal framework is your framework for marriage is the degree to which you will reflect to the world this wonderful mystery of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That's why this is so important. The stakes are that high. So treat it as a sacred covenant, not as a social contract. It's better that way. It's fuller that way. It's more beautiful that way. As a reflection of God's love for me and for you. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room for whom this message may fall heavy on them. Those having experienced the heartache of losing a spouse through death or divorce, those who have walked the road of perhaps loneliness or feeling isolated or feeling like they don't fit within the church because the church is full of nuclear families with a husband and wife and 2.3 kids. And Father, while we do see the normative pattern for marriage in the Scriptures, we also know that there are going to be exceptions. There are going to be exceptions because we live in a world that is filled with disease and death. There's going to be exceptions because we live in a world that is filled with people whose hearts turn from you and they want to pursue being their own gods rather than being submissive to you and coming under your authority. And those two realities of death and sin impact your design for marriage. So Father, for those who are grieving this morning because they have lost a spouse through one of those two ways, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be near to them. I pray you bring them great comfort. I pray they would know the hope that Christ affords And they would not only know it in their heads, God, but it would settle upon their hearts today and in the week to come. Father, for those who are in marriages that are struggling right now, I ask for your grace to empower them to see and stay, to choose covenant over contract, and be a reflection of your relationship with your people. For, the, for those who, for whom marriage may be years down the road, as they're in middle school or high school, I pray now you'd begin to establish a pattern of thinking in their minds to sow seeds that would bear fruit in glorious ways in their later high school, college, and young adult lives. They would be able to navigate relationships without devastating consequences and heartbreak because they're thinking covenant and legacy, not immediacy and contract.
you take your word and bed it deep within our souls. And may have it, may it have its lasting effect, we pray in Christ's name.